Welcome to the New Wild Review, Volume 1, Episode 3. All for the Individual. A conversation with wildlife veterinarian Dr. Shannon Riggs. I'm your host, Monty Merrick. A co-founder and co-director of Bird Ally X, Dr. Riggs lives on the Central California coast where she is the Director of Animal Services at Pacific Wildlife Care in Morrow Bay. Dr. Riggs, um, Shannon, as I call her, uh, was recently in Humboldt to spend the day working with Humboldt Wildlife Care Center staff and interns, and after which uh, we seized the opportunity to record the following conversation. We touch on the past, present, and the dreamed of future of wildlife rehabilitation, and uh, additionally, it turns out that the good doctor and I share the same opinion of Rage Against the Machine. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to this conversation with Dr. Shannon Riggs. Um, we started the conversation right at a point um, that I've always been fascinated by her, which is um, the fact that after she completed her you know, medical education, she moved right into doing wildlife rehabilitation medicine. And so uh, we started talking right about there on that topic. I graduated in 2002, but there was that internship residency mm-hmm. So you got to see a lot of parrots and yeah, stuff? Yeah, where I saw pet animals too. We did see wildlife as well in both places, but yeah, it was mostly for the pet, non-domestic type things. So, um, without, you know, asking you rude questions like, how old are you? Hmm. And stuff like that. I was, I was wondering, like, how, how long had you been an adult before you got into vet school? <laughs> um, I'm 48. Just, just get that right out of the way. Um, I, well, one thing, I grew up most of the time and went to undergrad in Iowa, and I did not want to go to vet school in Iowa, so I decided through various reasons to move to California and get residency and apply for vet school in California. And so that took, you know, that takes a year, and then... I did not admittedly get into vet school on the first attempt, so there was a couple years there, and I started vet school when I was 26. So there were, what was this, three, four years when I was working, you know, like vet assistant jobs and stuff like that before going to vet school in San Francisco and L.A. Uh Uh-huh. Did you, and did you volunteer to work with wildlife before you got into vet school? Uh, yeah, before I got into vet school, I did. I There was a raptor center at the University of Iowa, McBride Raptor Center, and I volunteered there a little bit. And then when I moved to San Francisco after undergrad, I volunteered briefly at both PHS and Wild Care. Oh. And <clears throat> yeah, I had to quit both those jobs when I left San Francisco, obviously, but... Yeah, so that was kind of my exposure there. Um, well, you and I met in 2007 at um, International Bird Rescue when I I was uh, I came I was living in Washington at the time and I came down to help with um, they had admitted I think it was in the neighborhood of 70 um, white-faced ibis chicks was and that, a bunch of was eggs. Was it before Costco? Yeah, it was just before. Was it just okay. months before? Okay, I had it switched around if I was the other way, but okay. Yeah, it was a 
buttload of ibis. Yeah, it was a whole lot of them. Yeah, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so how long in, you were you were at that time? You were also the OWCN response vet. And you were do, but it, when it wasn't spill time, you were working in, as the clinic vet at the San Francisco Bay Oiled Wildlife oh, Care wow. and Education Center. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I, I think that's pronounced. The acronym is pronounced Svabouchek. <laughs> I wondered. Is that? Yeah. That's uh, the proper pronunciation. Yeah, I, I think okay. so. Good. Um, so you. You, after you got graduated, you got into, uh, you did your internships and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And where did you do those? Um, internship for a year at LSU, Louisiana State University, and then the residency was back at Davis. LSU is a pretty major school for veterinary uh, medicine, isn't it? Yeah, in particular, the exotic stuff they've got at the time, and I mean, they still do have pretty well-known, respected exotics practitioners. So when I met you though in 2007, you had been the response vet for about a year? Yeah, yeah, I started, yeah, I started in like September. One of the things that I noticed immediately when I met you was your, uh, you didn't really take the received or conventional wisdom as sacred. And you were interested in like, well, let's find out for sure if we have to do it this way. Because there were certain, like, everybody assumed that wildlife that had been impacted by oil had to be treated this way, that these wounds had to be euthanized, that these wounds could be treated, and so on. And when we worked together, because immediately after, so that was uh, summer of 2007 we met, and then November of 2007, yeah was the first oil spill we worked together, and that was the Costco Busan in the San Francisco mm -hmm. Bay. Um, for those who don't know, that was, I guess, you know, every oil spill has a number associated with it for amount spilled, and that number is 100% uh, politicized as far as I've been able to tell. As yeah. far as accurate <laughs> oil spill numbers, yeah. I, don't, I don't know that they I mean, exist. as far as spills go, it was a pretty small spill. Right? Under 100,000 gallons, right? right? Yeah, but really it was bad measured timing. in gallons, not even in barrels. So. Right. Um, so it spilled uh, about fifty to 60,000 gallons of uh, bunker fuel from the vessel that had collided with the uh, San Francisco Bay Bridge. Mm -hmm. And it did it in November, right after all of the wintering waterfowl had arrived in San Francisco Bay. Sure. So we treated, I guess it was about 1,200 Yeah, like 1,200 and um but one of the things that we did on that spill that i thought was really exciting was keel surgeries yeah. is that is that what you took away from that spill well, <laughs> <laughs> um i guess i mean i i don't know I, I guess the thing that i remember most about that spill is all the carpal wounds and all the birds that had to be euthanized for that reason. I mean, that was the first oil spill I had ever worked. So it was.
And one of the things people kept saying, oh, this is so strange because there's all these ducks rather than grebes and, you know, how, the way we have to house ducks is, we know now, obviously a lot different than grebes because they're so much flightier, freakier, and they just kept hurting themselves in the plywood boxes we were keeping them in at the time. That really so, did change. That, yes, that, was, that changed. That was, that was a major improvement in oil spills for sure. And not just oil spills, but really aquatic bird care. Yeah. Yeah, it was just a hard lesson, I guess. I mean, unfortunately, I think it took, because there was such a chunk of time where we were just, you know, 18 hours a day, we were so busy, and we, I mean, you can't take time out to do even a 45-minute surgery on an individual right. animal, so it wasn't like until the end of the response we were really doing those, and unfortunately, I think, you know, if we had started doing them earlier... Would have saved more guys. Sure. Sure. Um... I don't really remember that this was, I mean, I think that my memory of it, so this is 2007 and, you know, it's 2020, so we are allowed <laughs> to have awful. some slight uh, difficulty oh remembering, goodness, yeah. but the carpal wounds, so for those of you who don't know, a carpal wound in an aquatic bird, like uh, a duck especially, um, when they're in captivity, they flap their wings and they beat the uh, their wrists against the uh, wooden sides of whatever they're being housed in, or it could even be the hard side of a pool if there's, you know, if there's so many animals that overcrowding is inescapable. And those wounds can become infected, and then um, that is a very critical area for, like, the tendons that move the wings to allow flight and stuff like that. So it, often these carpal wounds are, and even though they're just wounds to the wrist and very difficult to understand if you're a layperson, perhaps, but they render the bird flightless forever right. and that is of course an, an end-of-life scenario and I don't think that that's changed those carpal wounds still are killers yeah but like you said they're just we don't have ducks in plywood boxes anymore so I mean or, I don't or remember, carpal wounds really yeah because I, of that right I don't remember the last time I had to deal with those yes mm -mm. so that's one of the great things um, yeah. about um, doing that kind of care is that there are there are things that change the field forever and save birds lives forever we do learn in those moments of great extremity <laughs> um yeah it's interesting because i know we, we believe it or not we were having a conversation earlier today without the microphones running and um i was saying to shannon that we uh, don't really get keel lesions in our aquatic birds anymore I mean, we just don't see them. I mean, like, we're prepared to, you know, do what we can to prevent them. But it, it seems like they just don't happen. Like, we don't have to do very much no. to prevent. I mean, I can't remember how many, three years ago or something maybe, when we had a huge influx of grebes. I, that whole 
several hundred grebes who did maybe two wow. surgeries. And since then, I've <clears throat> I did one fairly recently. But other than that, I mean, it's very few and far between. I think it's just that's just one that's one of the things that just constantly like so I was thinking about keel surgeries and and the carpal wounds of course came up because we mm -hmm. we you know the pools we're here at the Humboldt Wildlife Care Center right now and this is not a facility that has a lot of money and most of what we build is uh, improvised out of literally scrap wood and materials that we find for free and cheap but one of the things that we've done here is we have a uh, our pool liner at the water line is not flush tight against the oh, that's uh, yeah. boards that are making the pool so mm -hmm. that there's some give there. That's a hand clap. Um, proving that that is the sound the duck doesn't make when they don't <laughs> crash into it. Um, you know, and I think that that, you know, I mean, I can remember certain scenarios at different times, you know, just one event, so a volunteer comes in in tears because they went to catch a buffle head and he flew across the pool mm -hmm. and whacked himself to death on the other side of the pool, hitting, hitting the wall. Sure. And like, we, do, we just don't have, is, you know, this is something that we train our volunteers is that all of our, all, every time I show them a thing that saves animals' lives, I point out that we learned the hard way. Yeah, <laughs> right. Unfortunately, that is true. So what's your favorite thing that you've seen change? Brown pelican with a metacarpal fracture. And everyone was telling me, it's never going to fly. It's not going to work. Da, 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 da. I'm like, but eh, it might work, you know. I'm just let me try. Let me try. And I tried it and it worked. And it was just, I think, bringing some of those more individualized care to wildlife patients like you can do a pretty extensive surgical type procedure on a wild bird I mean really having worked with them as long as I have now compared to my time working with pet birds they're far more resilient I would rather put a super sickly red-tailed hawk under anesthesia than an allegedly healthy cocktail. Oh, wow. You know? I just, I am never afraid they're going to die under anesthesia. Whereas every pet bird I put under anesthesia, is like, oh my God, it's horrifying. Because it just, it's really a whole different ball game. Even though, I mean, the wild animals, no matter how, what shape they come to you, they're a lot healthier. I mean, maybe they've been sick on the order of a couple of weeks versus the pet birds that have been, you know, eating sunflower seeds, sitting in a cage, doing nothing for the past 10 years. Mm. They are chronically ill versus a relatively acutely ill wild patient.
the wild animals really they they handle that stuff a lot better than I think we probably used to think that they could. You know, keeping them, yeah, we have, have to keep this bird with the fracture in captivity for probably a couple months. And we're gonna have to make sure his feet don't go to shit. And we're gonna have to make sure he doesn't get vitamin B deficiency, but we can handle all these things, I think. And when we understand more about their stress levels and what we can do to alleviate stress in them and make their time as easy as possible. I think just getting in the mindset where we can treat things that may not have seemed treatable before just because of the fear of keeping an animal in captivity for a long time. Well, I want to just circle back to that pelican that you talked about because first of all, I remember him. I'm like, yeah. I, I think I remember his band number, but I'm oh not sure. <laughs> I think it might be white 112. Wow. Um, not a clue. I, but yeah, I can't really. I'm, I, I wouldn't. I, I'm not like um, attempting to uh, win money on this. <laughs> but I remember. I remember you getting. I think weren't. I, were we at a conference when yep. you heard that he flew? Yeah, <laughs> at NWRA. Yeah, I thought mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I remember that. That was and that was just so intense. And I, I just knew then that that was a game changer. I knew that we were in a whole new world because before every every bird with a wrist injury was euthanized. And that surgery changed that. And there's other, there's other treatments for that, like for metacarpal fractures mm -hmm. that subsequently, like, and this seems the way things are, right? There's like a breakthrough and then everything sort of starts yeah, falling sure. into place. Yeah. And like just a certain kind of splint for a metacarpal fracture that we've used successfully here on many birds. Yeah. We don't even, I don't even think of, I mean, I think, okay, if it's super ugly, gnarly, and there's like tons of soft tissue trauma and all this stuff that is going to be really difficult to like keep that wound, you know, there's, right. th there's complicating factors, but, and remember, I'm not a vet, um, but we, metacarpal fractures, we don't, I, we got a splint for that. And and it's a, it's it's astonishing. And when and then when they do fly again, you know, we had a, and this is another. Uh, to, I'm going to jump topics here, but we had a widgeon who um, had a wing fracture, and I used the melty plastic as we call it here, <laughs> um, to make a basically to make a figure eight wing wrap. Mm -hmm because I knew that that fracture was bad, that he needed to be in a pool. Like if we were gonna get this widgeon through this, he had to be on water. And I, so, but I learned how to use that stuff from you. And I think I also learned how to think around the problem a little bit. Like, okay, so fine, we do. At one point, every bird with a wound below the waterline was euthanized. Mm -hmm. And nowadays we treat birds with wounds below the waterline all the time. And a bird who needed to be in a wing wrap, but also needed to be on water would be euthanized. But now we have tools and, and I think it's a, a way of looking at it. And it's probably true for all fields. And there's always people that bring in new ideas and things yeah. change and grow. But it's been a, just, you know, just an aside. It's just, I think of you all the time, even though we don't work <laughs> together anymore, because I, you know, like when I did that, I was like, Shannon would be happy I did this. <laughs> She'd be like, that's the way to use your training. Yes. 
and it did work. That widget did recover and did fly, you know, awesome. flew away from the at the release. Wow. It was like go That's by. So cool. Yeah, it was really awesome. What do you think is the worst? What, what what's you're at Morrow Bay, so mm -hmm. you're not exactly in Los Angeles, but you are <laughs> sort of at the front line of the apocalypse. Yeah, it's getting closer every day. What do you? What's what's the, what's the worst that you? Is it the gazillion grebes? What? Um. Yeah, weirdly enough, this winter, this is me knocking on wood, um, we haven't had any sort of disaster yet. But, you know, every year, almost every year prior to that, we had Grebe year, we had the Murray year, we had um, the Scoter year. Scoter year was terrible. Um, but, yeah, just seems like every, nearly every year we have some species that is affected by some likely environmental disaster, mm -hmm. some blob or whatever they are. The things that really annoy me the most is when people try to do things themselves rather than bring them to us. Like we have a skunk in care right now that is just, she's pathetic. She's only like 1200 grams and she is as sad as she is because the rescuer, quote unquote, watched her for three weeks continue to decline. Hmm. Like, if we could have gotten this thing even a week ago, she would have been so much better. And those are always the people that when, you know, they've been messing with this animal for a couple of weeks, days, whatever, they think they're so invested. So when by the time they bring it to you and the animal is completely beyond help, then you're the bad guy for euthanizing it. Yeah, that is... I, those are the things that really stick in my craw. Yeah, for sure. I, I agree. Make me lose sleep. Um, it, it's real. We had a raven come in here, and the person had had the raven for two months, and the raven had pox. And she was, you know, we, we, we have a, a, Humboldt is a very rural county, yeah. and there aren't a lot of services, and if you don't know, you don't know. So, like, I'm trying Which, to forgive yeah. ignorance a little bit, but... But, I mean, the, I think if you went on, if you Googled wildlife rescue, you, your, your website would pop up. She was I mean, taking this raven to a vet that she knew in Sacramento. Oh, she had God's made the sake. trip three times with, from Humboldt County to Sacramento. To bring that raven. Well, the fact that a, <laughs> that a veterinarian doesn't. Veterinarians should know. Yeah. And she drove past four wildlife hospitals uh, on her way to oh, Sacramento, at least, right? <laughs> at least. 
She had to go through, what is that, Region 3? Yeah. Where you can't throw a dead cat without hitting a wildlife center? Yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, and then by the time she brought him to us, she was full of, like, well, this is my raven. Right. And I want to know what you guys are doing. And, and like, to some extent, I'm like, I get it. I'd feel the same. Except for the part I wouldn't have done what she did. But, um, <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I, I try to be, like, you know, compassionate and understanding that people have investment. I'd certainly do, too. But... Yeah, it was really a struggle. And then, and that this was a guy that got released. Was it? But she oh. wasn't involved in the release. <laughs> um, and she wanted to be. And I didn't really, I was like, it's time to release him. I'm not going to hold him until it's convenient. Right. And that's what I do. What was wrong with it? Uh, he had had pox. Oh, okay. And he also had, uh, he also wasn't really flying very well. But his flight, he had a, he had like it must have been soft tissue damage to mm -hmm. his shoulder. But because we were waiting for the pox, it had plenty of time to recover. Right. Okay. And then he was flighted, mm -hmm. and he was like, "Okay, go." And you know, I mean, with pox, that's another situation, by the way, that where uh, I picked up something from you, because I came down to Fairfield to work on something, and there were MERS no. in a quarantine okay. pool, because they had been exposed to pox, and you were just keeping them to see how it went. And that was when uh, the idea of treating pox, or at least providing supportive care while the virus works its way through the bird, mm -hmm. um, that had never, never happened in any of my experience. All pox patients were euthanized. And we've, we've successfully, you know, probably since, since, you know, in the last eight years here, we've probably successfully gotten eight pox patients or thereabouts out. Most of them have been common MERS but yeah. a couple of ravens. And, uh, I think pox is one of those diseases in wildlife that is just used to scare people. I mean, I, I don't think there's a... I probably shouldn't even be saying this, but I think there's not a ton of transmission that really happens in care because in order to transmit pox, you have to touch an open lesion on one animal and introduce it into an open lesion on another animal. You know, it's not like it just flies through the air. I mean, it needs it needs a defect in the skin and able to enter the, the new host. So I think the vast majority of what infected animals are getting it from mosquitoes or vectors. Oh, wow. Okay. And well, that, okay. Well, that's something that, you know, because we seem to have a prevalence of pox corvids here in Humboldt. I don't know if that's, I don't know if we're like greater than other counties, but it's just, that's my anecdotal evidence is like wow we see a lot of these guys yeah. um but we also have a pretty healthy corvid population here yeah. too yeah uh but one of the things that i immediately started thinking once we started you know allowing these guys to recover in care was that these are exactly the patients that we want the these are the the animals who beat pox <laughs> deal with it, yeah. need to get back out into the environment if you're if they're predisposed to being able to beat it then they should be out there making babies yeah good point um which uh brings me to another uh slightly uh sideways thing so in the last podcast i did or i don't know if it's the last one because i don't know when this one's going to be out there but in one of the early podcasts, podcasts. i kind of gave it to biologists you know um because of a perceived battle between populations versus individuals right mm -hmm. and I, i've encountered 
not from every, I, obviously I have great friends who are biologists. Um, almost all of our volunteers are biologists in training. Sure. Uh, but what I've encountered is, in, especially in media, are biologists being interviewed during, you know, catastrophic events or even minor events where they're saying, oh, this is a waste of money. All of this should be put toward habitat protection or something like that. Well, there's a lot of reasons you can pick that apart. For instance, you could say, uh, I don't know. I think that the money for habitat protection is being spent by all the drones. <laughs> it's not being spent by wildlife rehabilitators. It's no. not like there's money that's just for habitat protection and we're the ones spending it thoughtlessly right. on exactly. individual animal care. Um, but And also, I think that there's a possibility, you know, that people are biologists for hire. Yeah. And there's a benefit Hopefully. to Hopefully. the responsible party mm -hmm. to put out a uh, message that this animal care is anti-science and irresponsible. And you can find somebody, you pay them to say it. Yeah. And then they do. Mm -hmm. treating individuals what does that make how do you how do you think about populations when you're treating individuals hmm. or do you I guess honestly I don't I mean I think about the individual animal I mean that individual animal you know nine times out of ten it's in our care because of something human related and I mean I think it's a little bit, I don't know, I'm sounding all high and mighty here, but a duty that if we can, that animal has as much right to live and thrive and reproduce and do whatever the hell he wants to do, just because he happened to fly in front of a car one day, I mean, that doesn't make him any less important and any less, have any less right to go out and live his life. So if we can, you know, give him a little help and he can go back out there, great for that individual. You know, it's certainly not going to affect the red-tailed hawk population of San Luis Obispo County one way or the other if he gets back out there. But I, it's basically for that animal, I think, which I, is important Yeah, there's. Yeah, I, I think it's important to me too, by the way. Just, sure I want to go on record as saying that that I, is also important that to me. That does not surprise me one bit. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, well, you know, I think it's pretty, it's a, it seems like a ridiculous thing to even actually have to assert. Because, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, I did encounter a an opinion once, and it was the most, I was uh, taken aback by it quite a bit because, like I said, usually those opinions from biologists that you encounter are not necessarily coming from people that, I mean, on oil spills, we work side by side with biologists. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously there's a huge, I'm not, this isn't really meant to be an anti biologist, you know, rant. <laughs> 
But I asked somebody once, you know, just talking about, just like, just trying to pinpoint where we were at on the spectrum. And I said, okay, well, here's the question. You're walking down the street and you see a robin on the sidewalk next to the road. And that robin has a broken wing. What are you going to do? And he looked me in the eyes and he said, well, honestly, I would break his neck. Let me take his course. Oh, he didn't say that at okay. the end. I just would have, I would have. <laughs> yeah, that, that really does let make my head explode. On the sidewalk after he'd been hit by a car. Oh, let's, let's na- let nature take its course. Yeah, that's, it's kind of a cop out. Totally. That is, it's one of the worst. I actually hate it because it's, it's never said by people that actually have any understanding or of any of the intricate functions of nature. <laughs> no, they, they don't actually know what nature's <laughs> no. course is. What they no. really mean is, no. let's do nothing. Yes. And that's all that they mean. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, but bending down to snap that bird's neck is not exactly the same as that. It's like, <laughs> no. <laughs> what, what He's in a good position to kick him in the ass, though. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think, you know, I was like, oh, wow, you just really um, don't, I mean, you are a a birder, an ornithologist, a biologist, but you aren't a doctor, but you just decided to do do the diagnosis and come up with a treatment plan right there on the sidewalk. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. I was rereading um, Lauren Isley's The Star Thrower. It's a came out as an essay. He wrote it in the early 60s. I think it was immediately after his first book. So, you know, Lauren Isley was an anthropologist. And um, he spent most of his younger professional years just rambling around the Midwest looking for dinosaur bones. He was a paleontologist, I guess, as well as anthropologist. So early, early man and dinosaurs were his thing. And uh, in, in the late 50s, he wrote his first book called The Immense Journey, which was, you know, popular science, became mm-hmm. a big seller. And then he wrote for about 20 years. He was the early man chair at University of Pennsylvania until he died in 1977. Oh. And he wrote, 20, he wrote books over the period of that 20 years that were fairly popular um, and largely forgotten. But you know the star thrower story. It's the guy walking down the beach, and he sees the all of the, he sees the gentleman ahead of him, who at low tide is throwing all these stars, sea stars, back into the ocean. Yes. And uh, it gets mangled and misquoted <laughs> and treated badly all the time, and very rarely is it attributed to Lauren Isley. But right, the point of the story, right? The, he says you can't possibly be making a difference, and the guy flings one more star into the ocean. Does it matter That's to that one? Yeah, we don't even question that kind of rationale with human beings. That, that's yes. I wanted to kind of circle back to that. So yeah, I mean, 
I often think that if I had been born, you know, 100 years before I had been born, I probably wouldn't have made it out of infancy with all of my allergic, immune, all these crazy asthma things that I have and all that. And But because I was born when I was born, I was, you know, just give me some medication, give me some allergy shots and, you know, I'm reasonably productive <laughs> adult <laughs> human being. But, you know, what made me more important than what makes, you know, just giving me a little boost is all I really needed to uh-huh. be able to survive to adulthood. I mean, it's kind of the same thing, you know, this animal had a bad day. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be the end of his life. And it has nothing to do, Just it's just all about that one animal, I guess. I have this fantasy that one day I'll have the time to do this, which is I want to write a history of wildlife rehab. That would be crazy. Um, Because right now it goes something like, there was the Birdman of Alcatraz, and then in the 1970s it began to be professionalized. And what I think is missing is the 500 years of the slightly frightening lady on the outside of town that people would <laughs> go up there and leave the shoebox with the, bir- the baby birds. Yeah. And then they would run like hell together from the house. And, yep. you know, witches, I'm talking about. Oh, probably. No doubt. field of wildlife rehabilitation to make it better if you could if it, this is a magic wand moment um, <laughs> um shower it with money yeah because and pay the people that do it a fucking living wage because i mean that's one of the big problems is you know you get like we've had some really excellent young people come to work for us but you can't expect, you know, someone who's 23, 24 years old to be making $12, $13 an hour for the rest of their lives. I mean, they're smart people. They, you know, do great for a year or two, but then they have to move on. And mm-hmm. there's just so much turnover. So it's hard to progress and really be viewed as a professional, professional career mm-hmm. that if it could be something where people could actually settle in and you know this is my profession i'm gonna really take it seriously and do what i can to advance myself and advance the profession i think that's what it needs because i think probably by and large society as a whole still thinks of us as a bunch of wacko bunny hugger types that don't really know what they're doing they're just Mm -hmm. That, well, you know, when we came in here... Unfortunately, money might change that. Yeah. Well, you know, I th- well, I th- some of that is really... 
the lack of money is actually hurting us because of what you're like what you're saying like we're not able to keep young people mm -hmm. um talented people are driven out of the field because they just can't stay here and you know and really most of us don't have 12 or even 13 dollar an hour yeah you know there's yeah, a lot of people that are just you know they they are volunteers their mm -hmm. entire careers because yeah. they live in an area where there's just no support for That's it true. whatsoever well for us here in humboldt that is definitely uh 2020 i'd like okay i've been here since 2011 and this is the year i am going to figure the money thing out <laughs> at least at least just get it so that we're not like in constant anxiety about yeah. like paying the bills that. this month uh -huh. You know, because that does, it does, you know, and it, it does detract. And it also, you know, and it impacts everything on so many levels. You know, I mean, I'm not like much of a complainer. I mean, well, unless you, you know, catch me at home when I'm in my pajamas and stuff like that, <laughs> then I complain a lot. But when, you know, but at work, I try to, you know, keep yeah, yeah. a very positive attitude and move forward. But, you know, when, when you work um, endlessly without getting paid, you start, it's like, we do live in a culture that rewards people with money for mm -hmm. doing stuff that it likes yeah and it does leave you with the feeling like nobody really cares at <laughs> yeah, all exactly. if i were to yeah. wither away and die uh-huh donors don't want to hear they're giving their money to pay someone's salary no, they want it to go to caring for the animals so it's really that's a difficult thing as well because it, you need to have these people paid so they can take care of these animals. It's all interrelated. And... Well, we have three paid employees here. Right. And we have an annual budget of $100,000. I know. And I'm like, when people don't do the math on that in their own heads, I'm like, imagine what they're getting paid. Yes. <laughs> like, just think about that. One full-timer, two part-timers. No, what crazy. are they getting paid, right? And we're still treating 1,300 animals a year on that $100,000. So I know. I'm like, I, I should not be talking about money. I'm probably one of the best paid people in the... Well, it's okay to have compassion for others. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, I still as a make field, a lot less than my colleagues, but, but that's I, not the point. As a field, though, we, it definitely yes. is a blanket. It's a blanket generalization that's really safe to make. Um the most I've ever made. Well, you know, oil spills don't count because there's no, that's a crazy. there's a crazy. Um, you briefly enter the oil empire, where <laughs> yes. money flows like oil. <laughs> 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 but, but when you're not in the oil empire, that doesn't happen. Just as a little bit of background information, uh, Shannon spent the day teaching interns and staff here at Humboldt Wildlife Care Center suturing skills, as well as uh, offering just general advice on animal care and also career planning. <laughs> and, um, and and the sad thing is, is that the career, one of the you know one of the career plans for, you know or career strategies for a wildlife rehabilitator is to get hooked up with somebody that has money. Yes, <laughs> and like that's yep. that's that's not advice that feels good to give. No, it sure <laughs>
like as we're saying, you know, everybody I know who has, you know, built a successful facility that provides quality care is getting money from somewhere. Yeah. And if they're not getting it from their community, they're probably just getting it from their spouse or they're getting it from <laughs> yeah. their family or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite colleagues uh, is a woman who lives and works in Texas, and I worked on several spills with her, and she's fantastic. Yeah. She's just a remarkable person. And, you know, you know, because when you're working on an oil spill or if you're working in a clinic, you know, if you can hang out with somebody for 10 hours and still be cracking jokes at the end of the day, that is a person you want to work with That's again. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, so her name is Judy, by the way. Um, if you're listening, Judy, it's you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she basically worked a part-time job the whole time. And wow. her husband paid the bills. As I, I mean, I don't really know their family's finances. But what, from what I remember her telling me is her husband basically paid the bills of their household with his job. And with her job, she paid the bills of doing wildlife rehab. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and that was, and that worked. But it doesn't really work. No. Having a part-time job elsewhere and then coming back and doing your, it's. No, that's exhausting. But if Gosh. you think about that, communities think that that's a normal way to operate. Yeah. Then it makes more sense that they want their children to be doing the animal care. Yeah, yeah. Because they're like, well, just, yeah, I want, can my kid come volunteer there and take care of it? And then like, mm-hmm. if you went to a hospital and you saw children <laughs> working in the hospital yes. providing care, would you like that? If you took your cat to the vet and it was children back there in the exam rooms doing the animal, yeah, right? you would like that? Not to mention, this work is not exactly easy on the emotions. No. The emotional turmoil of this work Mm -hmm. is, uh, it's extremely taxing. Yes. The rewards of this work do offset that to a a considerable amount, but not, not, I wouldn't say fully. No. So what does? I don't know. Besides gratitude for mortality. (laughs) I don't know. I don't drink I don't do enough drugs it's I don't know it's not I'm not a good person to ask about that because I I certainly I can't even come up with the words right now I certainly remember the bad things more than the good yeah like we just um we just had a bird he came in in August it was a western gull with a fractured humerus and we just released him last week so we were working with him that whole time that was a huge success I was really happy about that but then like the next day we got a pigeon in with um he had an ulna humerus and tibiotarsal fractures on the same side he got hit by a car and he had surgery for all these fractures I'm like sweet and then he died. He like died the next day. I'm like, why did I put that bird through all that? To that long ass surgery and you know, the pain and so like, that is what's, <laughs> that's what's bothering me now. Not this, 
I'm not remembering this goal so much that we spent five months rehabilitating and finally got him out the door, but it's this damn pigeon that we had for 24 hours that we thought, you know, if, if I had done this, I, if I had done that, if I just, you know, like waited a day and stabilized him a little bit more, if I had just maybe broken the surgeries up rather than doing them all at once, if blah, blah, blah. there's just always... Well, you know, the success is okay. I, I, I did stuff right. Let's move on. The, the failures, it's like, <laughs> what, could, what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently? Do you remember the movie Broadcast News? Uh-huh. Vaguely. Not... Well, I, I'm not saying it was that great of a movie, except for it was pretty good. Um, no. But uh, the Albert Brooks character, mm -hmm. who is... Uh, he gets his one shot at being on the national news and he's he turns yeah and it, he just like melts down literally yes. and um but at a different point he you know he's very good friends with the holly hunter character and they're both extremely professional journalists right she's a producer he's a writer and they're both like kind of uh put off by the william hurt character who's a pretty boy only yeah, yeah. with relatively vapid mm -hmm. um but there's a scene where Albert Brooks is talking to her on the phone and, you know, getting some free therapy from her. And he's like, should I be less critical of myself or am I good because I'm critical of myself? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Wow. Yeah, that runs through my mind now and again. So what was the answer? Well, Holly Hunter wound up with William Hurt. Oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Um, but I, that's something I definitely... I, I mean, I'm going to make a lot of chair noise here for a second. That is something that I... Uh, I mean, I... I don't know. I share that feeling with you. Like, I... Tube feeding a brush rabbit in the year 2000, and he died. Mm -hmm. And I relive that over and over again what I should have done why didn't I do this and it's literally been 20 years yep. and I it's as fresh in my mind as when it happened and when people came to me and told me why he died that I perforated his esophagus with the tube and well I'm glad I know because I, I and I use that rabbit all the time you know mm -hmm. I uh, all the t I mean all the time because when I'm training new people and they're exposing themselves to that risk just by being here. Yeah. And, you know, and so I use it. I hate telling the story, though. I'd really rather tell the story like I never did anything like that. Yeah. That was somebody else that did that. Lies. There, there's no one that has done this work that hasn't done something. Just, I mean, I, mean, I, I, I know I've told you the story of the, the great blue heron that I... Um, he had swallowed a fish hook. I, you know, did a, a ventriculotomy and removed the hook. The surgery went great. Uh, he was standing up, so I was tubing him after. Tubed him right down his fucking trachea. Oh. Have I not told you this story? No. God damn it. No, it was like. Uh. Uh. It was. Uh. God, that's so brutal. Yes. How do you get and through these how, moments? I don't know how people do it. I don't know how, I don't know how we do no. it. No. How did I get out of bed the next day? Ugh, so just stupid. 
Well, so um, if you're a youngster thinking about a career in wildlife rehabilitation, oh, yes, um, the rewards you, are great. The rewards are great. You're <laughs> going to be broke and <laughs> full of self-loathing by the time you're 30. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Yep, see you out there. So, um, other than showering the profession with money, is mm. what are what are your hopes for like animal care? Like, what 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 would you love to be able to treat that that we don't you don't feel that we treat very well right now? Hmm. It would be great if we had better access to diagnostic tests for like viral diseases in mammals, like the parvo and distemper things. Cause like where I'm at right now, I mean, we, you get a raccoon that is in good body condition, but just down, probably twitching, no signs of trauma. Okay. It's probably distemper. We euthanize him because we can send a distemper test to the lab. Um, the lab that we use always gives me shit because I'm, oh, it's canine. I like, I fucking know this. We talked about this the last time I sent one, just run it anyway. So I lose a day there and then, you know, like you're 48 hours later and the raccoon is having full blown seizures all the time. I mean, I would just like to be more, like for there to be some simple, quick way to know rather than me just guessing it probably has distemper. Let's euthanize it because that's kind of a big step to take on a guess. All, all pet dogs are vaccinated for parvo and you have this whole long list of things you're supposed to follow when you get your new puppy until mm -hmm. those parvo vaccinations are fully complete like not going to parks that other dogs are at and all of this stuff that you do to protect your dog from parvo but two years three years ago it'll be three years ago this summer we had a parvo outbreak among mm -hmm. our raccoon population our patients and that was because of a call that I made because we suddenly got a family of raccoons from four hours out of the area yeah. they were brought and we did not and I for a mom and her babies I keeping one baby raccoon in quarantine for 10 days is easy yeah I mean it's not easy for that baby it's hell on that baby but raccoon babies do not like being kept alone for 10 <laughs> days um, but quarantining the mom and her four babies <laughs> was like just a housing big enough for that yeah. was not going to be possible and so i'd never seen parvo in a raccoon in 2017 that was meant in 17 years i had never wow. seen parvo wow. in a raccoon so it's not like i'm saying i didn't believe in it but i was weighing my experience like okay what am i going to do with these raccoons I don't have any place to put them mm -hmm. unless I back all of the youngsters that are in the big housing back up out of it and put them in there. <sighs> yeah. And I did. And then Parvo, they, it turned out that the mom had Parvo, her babies had Parvo. They were all dead within five days. Yeah. Ugh. Except for I didn't know it was Parvo. Of course not. Of course um, 
so when we let the other babies back into the big housing, they, and we ended up losing half of our babies. Without knowing if, like, just put me back in that situation, and but don't give me the knowledge of obviously what you know. If I'm left with that same dilemma, I'm probably going to make the same choice because get using with the information I was using. But on the other hand, I have twenty baby raccoons that <laughs> Jesus, you know, because yeah. it was a big year for us to begin with. Oh, we, great. we got we, we got forty raccoons in that year, Holy forty shit. babies, which is a Ugh. large number for us. I mean, obviously, as we mentioned at the beginning, all of the advances that we have come on the lives of our patients. Mm -hmm. But then when you start actually talking about those patients and which like which ones they are, like the, you know, a pelican left in a warm water pool for and who Jesus. gets cooked because you don't know because your water level you know something changed your water temperature changed and you didn't know it because yeah. you didn't look for an hour or something and you know or a heat lamp shorts out or just something and it, it's cold and you know like there's so many ways wild animals can they may be more resilient but yeah, bringing them into a building and <laughs> making them dependent upon our yes. ramshackle and impoverished tech. Yes, exactly. Um, Again, money would fix some of that anyway. It would. The ability to do diagnostics on everything. The ability to have isolation, adequate isolation housing. Space. Space, yeah. yes. <laughs> I think, well, let's see, we've got the past, we've got the future covered, we've talked a little bit about the present. Mm -hmm. If you were not a wildlife rehabilitator, what would you be? I have thought about this quite a bit recently, actually. Um, I would be in forensics. Oh. I am fascinated by that shit. I was actually, yeah, after I told you, I'm so tired last night. I can't go out, out to dinner, blah, blah, blah. I watched, like, Forensics Files for, like, three hours. <laughs> you can do that when you're sleeping. <laughs> Basically, yeah. But it's really cool. And I actually just found out within the last couple of years that Davis actually has um, a really good forensics program. All right. So you'd be, like, CSI? <laughs> yeah. That CSI. is one of the most, one of the, my greatest frustrations in this field is how often we have no freaking idea how it got this yes. way. Yes. <laughs> like, what would you have done if you hadn't? Do you have any idea? Oh, well, you know, I've always got poetry to fall back on. Okay. So that's, that's, that's my escape hatch. Yeah. I was a landscaper where I learned how to cut and glue PVC. <laughs> yes. Invaluable. Uh, invaluable. Uh, I worked at fast food where I learned how to make breakfast for hundreds. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Breakfast in a way. <laughs> <laughs>
breakfast yeah. in a way. And uh, yeah, not really good breakfast. No. Um, and you know, in various construction jobs are yeah. definitely beneficial. In fact, you know, one of the things we do here is, you know, most of our, most of our staff are young women mm -hmm. who mostly did not have, um, some young women do, but not all young women, most don't have a dad who put power tools in their hands yeah. at young ages. And, but I didn't either. I didn't learn how to use power tools until I was in my 20s. So I feel really qualified to bring people from not knowing, adults mm -hmm. who don't know how to use power <laughs> tools into, like, it's not a mystery. And remember who does use them. Yeah. Are they the smartest guys? <laughs> no. Well, I'm just saying, that I just, you know, you just want to make people who have historically been denied access to certain things understand that it's not because of any limitation on their part. <laughs> that's a good, okay, yeah, that's very true. Um, everybody, every, all, all of the young women doing, you know, wildlife conservation and management programs at HSU are competent enough to operate a skill saw. Of course. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> yep. So anyway, we do a lot of that because, you know, it's obviously, you know, as you know, building housing for a wild animal is not the same thing as doing carpentry because you have to know what the needs of your patient are mm -hmm. and accommodate them, even mm -hmm. if it means building it wrong from the way you're <laughs> the way you were taught by your mentor. Right. Yes. Um, is there anything you want to talk about in general, like wildlife rehab related, or do you want to like just shout out to your favorite '90s indie rock band, or <laughs> anything like that? Oh man, no, I'm not. Or do you I'm have not. tickets to see Rage Against the Machine? Oh, I don't like Rage Against the Machine. I never did either. I wanted. I like the idea of them yeah, more than I, I like the way they sound. Yeah, I don't know. That's the, my whole problem. I'm like, no. you go, guys, but don't go over here. Yeah, go out of your shot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you have rage against the machine. Oh, so, so much rage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know I do. Okay. Oh, Tom Morello, if you're paying attention, <laughs> we um, we love you we and you. we respect you and we just. We just like pretty music. Mm -hmm. You know, like Nirvana. Yes. We do like Nirvana. It was pretty. Yeah. It was fuzzy, but there's beautiful still melodies. Is. Still is. Deep inside. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you'll be, uh, this will be edited somewhat. That, <laughs> for instance, that'll be gone. And um, I think we're. Uh, time for dinner. Time for dinner. Okay, so thanks a lot, everybody. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to the Bird Ally X podcast, New Wild Review, Volume 1, Episode 3. All for the individual. A conversation with wildlife veterinarian Dr. Shannon Riggs. If you'd like to know more about the work of Bird Ally X or looking for ways to support our work, please visit our website www.birdallyx.net. That's B I R D A L L Y X.net. Thank you for your support and thank you for your love of the wild.